Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and in this episode, I get thoroughly and delightfully schooled by my guest. He's a born and bred Londoner, a working class mod who grew up in the 50s, got radicalised in the 60s, and became the founder of one of the most successful activist groups of the 70s. He's also a massive music head, excellent company, and the radical representative of William Morris here on Earth. That's the designer, not a cigarette person. We haven't really covered the political aspects of counterculture here, partly because I confess I'm politically rather vague, not to say lost at sea, but that's about to change. Today we are flying the flag. And you can vote for us if you like at all the usual online places, or come knocking and canvas at our door, bureauoflostculture.com. Sign up, join us, or send you our manifesto. Well, the odd email, at least. And before we dive in and follow the flag, I wanted to say thanks to a few people. Adrian Esmeralda, Will, and Rachel at Soho. And Johnny, again, Ben and Jenny and Chris for recent communications and suggestions. Very helpful. And to Nigel and Susie for their support. That is very kind and much appreciated. It's very good to hear from people. Makes me feel like we're back in the 60s. Now, back to now. Roger Huddle was one of the founders of Rock Against Racism, RA, as you'll hear him refer to it, enlisting a huge range of some of the UK's best bands in the fight against fascism and inspiring a whole load of others to do the same. We're going to talk about all of that, about growing up in London, about agitprop, pop, protest, propaganda, revolutionary socialism, slogans, Eric Clapton, and of course, counterculture. And we're going to discover much more about Walthamstow and William Morris. Welcome, Roger. Oh, thanks a lot, yes. I think you're one of the few people that I've had on this show who is actually born and bred in London. Even a lot of people who were actually, you know, countercultural figures, a lot of them came from Cambridge and Oxford and stuff, you know. Yeah, I was born and bred in Walthamstow, but that's the catch, you see, because Walthamstow, when I was born, was in South East Essex. Walthamstow, as we know it today, is a product of the railways coming out from Liverpool Street out to Chingford. For anybody who doesn't know London, Walthamstow is, an, is now a district of London. And it's in the northeast. Yeah, northeast. But as yeah. you told me when we were speaking the other day, it actually was until fairly recently it was a village wasn't it had a small town on the outskirts of london actually the same as tottenham and newham which are our neighbors hackney is real london you get go across the river lee out into essex and there is us tottenham etc uh, so but it had a population of 250,000 so it wasn't a village it was a town okay um, but it was the railways that sort of made it, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and also it was a town and it was almost completely working class. Um, there was always the posh bit, um, but that was in Chinkford. That's why Chinkford is uh, is still Tory, always was Tory. Whereas Walthamstow uh, was uh, Labour. It, Although your parents were Tories as well, weren't they? My mum and dad were terrible Tories. They were true blues, terrible. right? Terrible. My mum was terrible. She she went on the knocker for the Tories, mate. Oh, you mean at vote, uh, yeah, voting, voting time, time yeah. you go knocking door to door, canvassing. And I just saw my mum having an argument with all our neighbours. <laughs> but she wouldn't give in. She was a terrible Tory. I don't know why. Um, my mum and dad come from that generation, pre-war, Second World War. 
who did everybody had their place and you do as you're told and the ruling class were the ruling class because they were better they were good they were the best people for the job and so therefore you don't criticize there's always been working class tories haven't there in the thatcher era there was the escort man or something was it or white van man white. yeah but a white van man by definition is a petty bourgeois or small self-employed dodger bit of this bit of that buying to the system really but i mean i don't understand a working class tory because why was my mum and dad tory mm. um i don't understand it luckily my uncle next door who was my he was a really good uh, trade union socialist you said that he was the person that sort of initiated you into sort of socialism and left-wing thinking was not he the person who did that the most of that was jf kennedy with the missile crisis of 62 tell us that was the first time that i i felt the outside world encroaching on me as a young boy a young man you, you know. mean so when the world was facing nuclear destruction yeah. because the u.s and the ussr were facing up to each other over the missiles in cuba that that was the shake-up call right that was when i started thinking look i've got to go beyond mohair suits and haircuts and imported jazz records yeah so you were like a mod were you i was i called myself a mod yeah Yeah. we were because we were the first generation post-war teenagers really you know that there was a market to sell to we didn't know that at the time i thought i was completely individual and then when i think it must have been in the early 70s i saw um Martin Scorsese's the first one with Nero in Main Streets. Main Streets. Then I saw all these kids, but you know, in the in the movie set, and they all had the clothes that we wore. We all thought we was we was we were so independent. But even then, you know, and then I think of songs like "The Boy from New York City" and all that. And I get this picture that actually we we weren't that far out and independent. We was actually part and parcel of a post-war trend. Right. Um, but in England, it was a big deal because it, more than anything else, the clothes were okay. I couldn't afford that many because I was only an apprentice. I left school at 15. What were, you, what were you apprenticed at? I was an apprentice compositor in the print industry, in letterpress print, and it, which basically died at the end of my apprenticeship. So I did six years to learn to be a craftsman in a craft that was no longer there. Right. And you got radicalised by the Cuban Missile Crisis because it was like you're just living your London life as a young yeah, dude yeah. and then suddenly the world could freeze. Yeah. yeah, and I think also CND was bubbling in the background. Right. I mean, that started building up in, what, 61. There's a great Charlie Mingus song called Don't Drop That Bomb On Me, which I'd heard at that time. Yeah, it was that that concerned me. There's something in the world that's not right. Um, and then I started looking at a lot more stuff and then I started thinking about me I mean I started work at 15 I mean I think I was on the second week and the journeyman who I was uh, uh, given to to be trained said to me don't worry boy it's the first 50 years at her worst <laughs> and, I, and, I, yeah, and I was 15, 16, 17 I'm thinking 50 years of this doing the same thing doing this coming on right. this bloody train every day into work yeah, someone called me a bullshit before I knew what it was Bolshe, I mean Bolshevik. Yeah, yeah. Is that where it comes from? Then, you've been a bit Bolshe. I, mean, yeah. I never thought of that before. Yeah, Bolshevik. Bolshevik, right? Yeah, yeah. You were having these kind of left-wing leanings, as it were. But then, then the great, the great happening was the Vietnam War. Right. Vietnam, you mean in terms of radicalising you? Radicalising me, radicalising my generation, I think. Right. And then it opens the door to the American counterculture. Instead of listening to English stuff, I was listening to Grateful Dead, uh, Jefferson Airplane, Finding the Blues. You know, finding Folkways records and buying albums by Blind Lemon Jefferson. It sounds snobbish, but it's not really. 
it puts you outside the mainstream, mm. um, which is important, I think, young people today. The ones that are thinking about the world are the ones who have stepped outside the mainstream and listening to off-the-wall stuff, uh, you know, left-field stuff. I mean, in terms of, like, counterculture, that is such an important part of it, isn't it? Is that yeah. you're, you, you're counter to something, right? So, which kind of means that you've got mainstream culture and then you've got these other underground yeah. things going on. Can you just say a little bit before we dig into what happens next about London in the 60s and early 70s for you? Because we talk a lot here about the swinging 60s and, you know, the kind of Carnaby Street and all that stuff. First of all, you're a, you're a born and bred Londoner coming from that mod background, which tends to be a bit more smart, working class kids, yeah, isn't it, right? Yeah. So were you participating in the swinging 60s, Summer of Love and all that? brought with it or not by the time the summer of love came along i'd already left my mod background and i saw myself as a beatnik right. as a i was certainly by that time discovered the beats i discovered along with uh, john coltrane right an uh, enormous influence um and uh, and charlie mingus again enormous influence massive i was playing some mingus today and I, it came across me that just how important he was to me your whole life has been soundtracked by music hasn't yeah, it really? I mean, really. we're going to get on to that one really, way or another but these those years you know, they're inextricably linked with what you were listening to yeah the actual music started just before the great explosion which happened at the same time as the civil rights movement right in the mid 50s right was when black musicians in america decided to take back jazz from the white mainstream uh, which had developed in the post-war years with you know with people like uh, uh, Andre Previn and Glenn Miller and, 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 and that third yeah. work yeah. move stuff yeah. and they was it was called hard bop the music was main, mainly presumed put out by the label Blue Note which was owned by escapees from Nazi Germany it caught up in England in the early 60s hmm. I mean people can't imagine today I mean because you can download a bit of music from anywhere in the world but at that time, you had to hunt it. You had to find it. You had to have somebody who who, who imported it. A treasure hunt to actually s- track it down, seek it out, track it down. Yeah. And then when you'd got it, it was like this precious <laughs> thing which you and your friends knew about yeah. and would dig. I think that's the thing that joined us together. I can't right. tell you how many yeah. times I've played the Drifters, uh, this magic moment, mm. uh, those vocal harmony bands from the early 60s. Mm. And then the kind of the Beach Boys, they were around as well. Music is the kind of the background to mm. my life, more ways than I can imagine. It's only in the last two decades that I've begun to write a lot and, right. and is that I've realised just how much it's mm. embroidered into my life. All the other stuff that was going on, countercultural stuff, did that impact you too? So apart from music, psychedelic revolution in terms of drugs and all this consciousness raising stuff that was going on in terms of new ideas, and or were you more at the political end then? I was at both actually. I mean, the conscious raising stuff was really not f- not for the li- a person who, who had to get up and go to work the next day. You know, right, to be honest. right. So that was really in the uh, either the student milieu or the dropout milieu. Because you were basically working all the way through, so it's yeah. like you're not going to be up all night doing acid and stuff because no, you've no. actually got to be in work. Got to be in work the next day. Yeah. Weed is okay. Um, mm. I'm a great great lover of good good weed i can't stand mm. the stuff they, they smoke today mm. Mm. which is a brain killer and also makes you very paranoid you know our joints used to blow up because it sort of suddenly gets to a seed and it would explode <laughs> um and we would buy it wrapped up in newspaper from the back rooms of pubs from black guys the weed was more your thing rather than acid or 
masculine yeah. or any yeah. of the other stuff that's yeah. going on, right? Yeah. Just before that, and I didn't do too much of it. Was uh, uppers and downers mm. with purple hearts and that, which was mm. a, a very mod dr- uh, drug. Mm. But my drug was dancing. I just loved dancing. Which clubs were you going to? The main one was the scene, mm. uh, which was in Ham Yard. That's uh, right in the corner from here. Yeah. Right, uh, well, that's what I love all around here. I mean, mm. they've killed it. The gentrifiers have killed it, but it, it was really great around here in the 60s. And then there was the All Nations and the Mingo. Um, I never went to the Marquee, funny enough. Mm. I always saw the Marquee as the um, as mm. Rockers Club. Uh, so we didn't go there. So I didn't see those early English blues bands, which were always a power imitation of what I was listening yeah. to. So. so what sort of stuff were they playing in the clubs like that you were going to then? Two live bands, and both, I think they're still gigging, but I haven't seen them for years, were Zoot Money and the Big Roll Band, mm-hmm. uh, who were just incredible. Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. Now, both those bands, especially Georgie, he played a lot in the bases, American bases in Norfolk, Suffolk. He, he got stuff via the bases from the Black Airmen, things like Mose Allison and Oscar Brown Jr. into his music, and then we would pick it up and then we'd go out and buy the albums. Right. My, my route to that kind of music was via Georgie Fame. And at the Mingo, Mose Allison played there. Uh, and the other band that was very important at this time was The Animals. But they all broke up. Zeke Money transformed himself into a sort of psychedelic outfit, didn't he? Dan Talion's <laughs> yeah. chariot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he sort of saw, saw which way the wind was blowing. Yeah. They played a kind of sophisticated northern blues. Yeah. Um, I mean, northern in terms of Chicago, yeah. New York. It was horn section stuff, mm. you know, and it loud uh, howling blues. So, And you were saying that dancing was like your drug. Hot, sweaty club. Friday, 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 Saturday night. Well, now during the week as well. During the week as well. Yeah, right. because most of the clubs used to be free on a Tuesday and a, maybe right. a Thursday. So right. you got in for nothing and it was just people playing right. records. Right. Um, I was madly in love with the woman in the booth at um, the scene. I don't think she ever recognised me or knew me at all, but I thought she was... So you stand in front of it staring at her. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> she played really the best seven-inch singles. She was fantastic. That, so that was great. That was all mostly on the Sue label, most of right. them. You could get the Sue label records from a Jewish couple who run a little record shop at, um, at uh, Stamford Hill. So we would make pilgrimage to there at the weekend to pick up the latest uh, Sue singles. You know, uh, I don't know what, get your red dress on and uh, I'm a soul man and all that stuff, you know. You're working, you're dancing at the clubs and then your political leanings are growing, right? The impression I've had over the time that I've been having these conversations is that the 60s, turns into the 70s and it, and actually the psychedelic dreams get darker it becomes a bit more grounded actually yeah, as well yeah. and, and actually the political activism really starts kicking off a bit more in the 70s i think as the 60s progressed and it became more and more apparent that the man the system uh, was stronger than we thought i mean the vietnam war drifted into the early 70s uh, the rise of the black panthers which we thought was very, very exciting, fantastic organisation. But they couldn't make that they couldn't make that transition out of the ghetto into the unions and the black, and the white workers. Tell us a little bit about the Black Panthers then. Well, that whole, that whole process in the sixties of black of the black uh, civil rights movement mm. going uh, from King to Malcolm X, and then from Malcolm X to Huey Newton, Bobby Searle, and that that kind of romantic leaders of the 
And then suddenly you had photographs of the Black Panthers standing outside the Lincoln Memorial holding pump shotguns, mm. um, saying, oh, yeah, it's my constitutional right to carry arms. And, and, and you know, and then suddenly you got a very armed, very angry black movement because it was so militant. And by that time, I was committed anti-racist and understood more about how racism is used to divide us stop unity in the working class because obviously it's such an important uh, theme in your story but what was it that really got that such a big part of your political consciousness then i think in the end i had to get a divorce from my friends i mean that's what i call it right in the end i had to stop one thing and begin begin another but simultaneously with my uncle bill as i said earlier my uncle bill not so much got me political but he got me into the workers educational association mm-hmm. He knew that I wanted to learn because school taught me nothing. You was just factory fodder. If you didn't pass the 11 plus, you was just marking time till you go, went to work. Right. But my uncle knew that I was interested in stuff. I, because I was doing David Lease at Camberwell School of Arts and Crafts, I mean, I was the only printing apprentice to be awarded most promising typographer. Tutors really fought for it because it was, wasn't known that the manual part of the college could be involved in the art side of it. But right, I, so there's a division between like the apprentices who were sort of working in industry in the basement. And, then the art, and the, in the basement and the art students. <laughs> yeah, right. all these wonderful, wonderful young women with kind of caftans, you know. <laughs> it was absolutely heartbreaking for a 16, 17-year-old. But there was a wonderful librarian there, a woman, I don't know her name, uh, but she let me take out books. Right. And I discovered pop art first. But also, I'd, I started reading Grapes of Wrath by uh, Steinbeck. And that had a transformation effect on me. First of all, I loved the art side of it. I was already becoming a snobby enough, I suppose. But I loved that because it was more beaty, more beatific. Mm. It smelled of linseed and oil and that mm. wonderful mm. smell of the old art schools mm. that are not there anymore. And I just loved that. And I loved the young women who were just all looked like angels to me. And I started reading and uh, taking the books out. And then I found a little bookshop just around the corner from here. I bought myself the collected works of Lenin in three volumes, selected works of Lenin. I think it's because I started falling in love with typography. I love book design. I still do buy books just because they look great, not because I'm going to read them. You're preaching to the choir here. (laughs) I love books and I love the way they look. And I think also just to put it into context, given that everything that's gone on with the Soviet Union, it's easy to forget that actual communism and certainly Trotskyism and Leninism were actually live things in this country, weren't they, in the 60s and 70s? They still are. They still are? Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to yeah. get on to that. Right, okay. I think the important thing is here, <laughs> I was lucky, because what I decided to do around about 1965, 66, first of all, I took off my mohair suit and I on Levi's and I bought a donkey jacket. And I looked what I wanted to look like. I wanted to look like Gregory Corso. Mm. I wanted to look like Fernand Getty. I joined the Labour Party Young Socialists in Walthamstow. And I was really, really lucky because at that time there was three Trotskyist groups working in, in the Labour Party Young Socialists. Two of them were Orthodox Trotskyists who still believed uh, that Russia was a, a, a worker's state of some kind, even though it was degenerated or deformed. In the APYS branch that I was in, it was dominated by the ideas of a group called the International Socialists, who had developed a theory of state capitalism that 
uh, that Stalin was the counter-revolution, that the revolution was defeated, the outside intervention, the lack of it spreading beyond its borders. And when Stalin said we can build it in one country, that was the end, really, of everything that the revolution had stood for. Stalin was seen as the counter-revolutionary yeah. force, the utopian vision of the early communists actually remained and yeah, that yeah. actually it was Stalin that brought the whole thing down yeah, and yeah. Turned, turned it into a tyranny. He executed them all, yeah. Yeah, he executed all the Bolsheviks. Yeah. He hunted uh, Paul Trotsky, his daughter, his sons, mm. his women or his grandchildren. Hunted, them all. hunted them all down, yeah. yeah. I speak to the back of the head famously yeah. in Trotsky's case. Yeah. So for me, yeah. it was this was also part and part of I can have uh, Country Jonah Fish saying, give me an F, give me a U, and I can and I can read that I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed. Mm. I could do all that, but I could also read the revolution is when the masses who have been suppressed burst through the surface. This is great. This is mm. politics that I can So you to. got, forgive me if this is the inappropriate word, but sort of evangelical zeal to make a difference so you'd, you'd imbibed this stuff and you had this vision about actually how society could be yeah. different maybe a little bit different than the hippies but in a way because they were also interested in social change on yeah, a big scale yeah. you had this more specific political method if you like yeah. of how things could be and you wanted to basically put it into action and spread the word yeah right up to today Right. I mean, it's like, um, for the hippies, their vision was Woodstock. For me, my vision was the giant general strike in Paris in 68. Well, I don't even know what that is, so tell me what that is, what was. Well, the, the Vietnam War became really the centre of struggles. Mm. And then there was a rising student movement. Mm. As the edifices collapsed around of Stalinism, you got the Prague mm. Spring, the monolith cracking, the idiocy of the communist parties, which were quite clearly not revolutionary. Then other movements started filling in those, that vacuum. In America, it was the student movement, it was the Black Panthers, it was a women's movement. Over here, it was very much really the workers' movement that began to fill that vac vacuum. Students, especially French students, they started putting their education system under a microscope. And what they argued was that the universities were no more than education factories or information factories. And it wasn't about their lives. And then they got really attacked. De Gaulle set the uh, riot police on a demonstration against the Vietnam War. They occupied the universities. Then they got attacked there. And and what happened was the workers came out in support of the students because they had their own problems, especially young workers joining the students on the demonstrations. Young workers was alienated in the real factory, not the mm. education factory, but the real factory. So all these things combined and you had the massive explosion. Nine million were on strike. Um, I was stuck at Oxford at that time. I, was, I went to a trade union college in Oxford and I was desperately trying to get to bloody Paris and I couldn't get there and... My, my big regrets uh, was not being there. But what came out of that was an extraordinary thing. For you, that like ignited your own inspiration in terms of social action and what could be done. Yeah. What, I mean, I'd already been involved. I mean, I was on picket lines in 66, uh, um, 67. Um, we was doing a big campaign around rent strikes. It, it wasn't just in terms of France. Right, I've still got all the newspapers and magazines from the period, sort of getting a bit rotten now, but they're still there. Everything sort of seemed to gel for me. Photography was absolutely fantastic. That linked in with the people like McCullen who were doing incredible photographs in Vietnam. My love of typography and graphic art, on the one hand, merged into my developing kind of political consciousness. And then what happened, of course, in the bloody period of the 60s 
we suddenly found out about the constructivists. We suddenly found out about Vachenko. We didn't know anything about Vachenko. It had been buried by the Stalinist period. All these things were happening in the late 60s, and I was no longer a mod then, and I was no longer just a beatnik. I was a revolutionary socialist. This comes a bit later, but I wanted to just quote back something that you said. We saw the importance of not just the music, but the colour, the badges, the slogans, the banners, the newspaper, yeah. the sense of freedom, the sense of anarchy, of a fight not just about racism, but against the system itself. And because actually you're working in this world, this graphic world, this yeah. world of print as well, the revolution was music and graphic image that yeah. was so important right from the beginning for you wasn't yeah. it both red and myself my old friend red saunders the, the slogans that came at that appeared on the walls mm. mainly situationist mm. slogans on the walls of paris in that period were things that actually became um, bywords for the rest of our lives things mm. like all power to the imagination uh, mm. be a realist demand the impossible these slogans that mm. were, and, that, and they were hand cut mm. uh, and stenciled and stenciled, then stuck yeah. on the walls and yeah. I remember going into the LSE during this period the School of Economics and there was all these posters drying all hanging mm. on mm. washing lines with, wooden, with <laughs> washing clips you know there's a very really strange smell to screen printing ink so it's very embarrassing I've never this is almost a secret I bought myself a a college scarf so I would so well, people would think oh, I was a student yeah <laughs> hey we've all been there <laughs> as the sort of 70s went on you're actually working in the Socialist Worker Party print yeah, shop when yeah. you started off Rock Against Racism I wanted to just try and paint a picture what the racism in this country was like in the 70s you know what you started to kick against and, and actually campaign against and in fact what you started to build a movement against yeah. but so was this country very racist in the 70s? And Yes, it was. But some people say worse than it is now, much worse than it right. is now. We're approaching it again because of exterior reasons. Quite early on, I understood that by and large, racism comes from above, not from below. Good old Karl Marx, he wrote somewhere that the ideas of any given epoch generally are the ideas of the ruling class and they perpetuate down. Ideas do not originate by and large from below and go up. Other ideas do, um, the ideas of revolution. So therefore it's ours, it's actually the workers, it doesn't belong to the upper class at all. It's our philosophy. So racist attitudes, you're saying, they were percolating down from above. Yeah, yeah. And you've got this, partly through music, partly through your sort of consciousness rising through you know, witnessing Black Panthers and all these yeah. movements. Whether wherever it's come from, right? Were you seeing it around you on a daily basis in working class London? Not so much in the uh, in the sixties. I mean, it ebbs and flows racism. It's, the only way you get rid of racism, you get rid of the system that breeds it. You know, we're stuck with racism because it's such a perfect weapon for the ruling class to divide us. And the British ruling class are past masters at the divide and rule. You know, look at Pakistan and India, look at mm. all the, the the empire. How did they mm. rule the empire? By splitting the local populations against mm. each other. I mean, they are past masters at it. And in terms of racism coming down from above, it's easier to have the argument today than it was in 1970. Today, because of the Black Lives Movement, people are beginning to recognise the relationship between slavery and capitalism. You know, there's not an institution in Britain or a big house in Britain that somehow or another the brickwork is got, is seeped in the blood of slavery. So, so this is when people talk about racism in, in this country or anywhere else being systemic, yeah. built into the system itself. B right into the system itself. As a young 
Man, did you have black friends? Did you have friends from different parts of the world in, in, in Walthamstow as a young working class guy? Not many there. I had black friends in the clubs because mm. we would dance and we would chill, mm. we'd talk. But in terms of my working community, no. And in the factory where I worked, mm. it was all white. The only women there as well were in the warehouse. Mm. They weren't in the skill bits. Mm. Um, that's another story, of course. But in the 70s, it, you could tell the racism was rising. It started on the rise after Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech in 1968. He really, really did raise the whole thing about immigration. Up until then, it was the Windrush nation. It was, uh, it was the people who came and saved, rebuilt... Um, England after the war. Talked about it here with Dennis Bavel, with his yeah. parents, you know, who came, his dad worked on the buses, his mum worked in the NHS. Yeah, you know? yeah. But it built the infrastructure. Big thing for us was the was the development of uh, migration from the uh, Indian subcontinent, Pakistan in, mainly. That's when you started hearing the word Paki on the streets right. and stuff and in conversations. Culturally, mixed much more in the 80s and 90s than in, in the 70s. Racism was powerful. You could feel it. Um, well, they even had TV shows, didn't they, where, which actually satirised it. Uh, on the buses and um, Love Thy oh, Neighbour. Oh, God, that was dreadful. I mean, that actor's still alive. I'd like to ask him whether how he felt about with that script. I mean, right. And then there was a black and white minstrel show on a Saturday night. I, don't, I mean, just to look at a clip of it now is grossly embarrassing and also... Cringe-making, isn't cringe it? Cringe-making. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things which I, you could talk about, which I think specifically inspired you and your friends, which is quite really quite shocking, uh, because I'm sure a lot of people love the guy, is... Eric Clapton, you know, the great guitar hero, yeah. the Yardbirds and all that sort of stuff, makes this speech, doesn't he? It, yeah. You know, tell, tell us about that. The shock was extraordinary. I think nowadays it would be called Islamophobia, uh, attacking uh, Asians. This is what Eric Clapton said in August 1976, um, declaring his support for Enoch Powell, Powell you yeah. know, who'd been a Conservative minister, but um, he made this you know, anti-immigration rivers of blood speech. Clapton told the audience at a concert in, in Birmingham that England had become overcrowded and should vote for Powell to stop Britain from becoming a black colony. He told the audience that Britain should get the foreigners out, get the wogs out. Wogs is a, a terrible word. Get the coons out, another one. And then repeatedly shouted the National Front slogan, keep Britain white. I mean, it, I mean, yeah. it's astonishing yeah. to, to read that. I mean, he's had to live with it since, I'm guessing. But that was one of the specific things which, for you guys, actually lit the fuses. Yeah. Way, right? Here is a sidebar about Rock Against Racism. Rock Against Racism was a political, cultural movement which emerged in 1976 in reaction to a rise in racist attacks on the streets of the United Kingdom and increasing support for the far-right National Front. Between 76 and 82, RAR activists organised national carnivals and tours, as well as local gigs and clubs throughout the country. RAR brought together black and white fans in their common love of music. Reggae, soul, rock and roll, jazz, funk and punk. The movement was founded in part, as we've heard, as a response to racist statements by rock musicians such as Eric Clapton. As Roger said, it remained just an idea until August 1976, when Clapton's support for Enoch Powell. Until 1976, with the infamous statement by Eric Clapton at his concert. Roger and co wrote to the enemy, expressing their opposition to Clapton's remarks. When I read about Eric Clapton's Birmingham concert, when he urged support for Enoch Powell, I nearly puked. What's going on, Eric? You've got a touch of brain damage. 
So you're going to stand for MP and you think we're being colonised by black people? Come on. You've been taking too much of that Daily Express stuff. You know you can't handle it. Own up. Half your music is black. You're rock music's biggest colonist. You're a good musician, but where would you be without the blues and R&B? You've got to fight the racist poison. Otherwise you degenerate into the sewer with the rats and all the money men who ripped off rock culture with their checkbooks and plastic crap. Rock was and still can be a real progressive culture, not a package mail or a stick-on nightmare of mediocre garbage. Keep the faith. Black and white unite and fight. We want to organise a rank-and-file movement against the racist poison in rock music. We urge support. At the end of the letter, they called for people to help form a movement called Rock Against Racism. And they received hundreds of eager replies from fans who recognised the hypocrisy and wanted to proclaim the black roots of the music they loved. Sadly, Clapton was not alone. Other well-known rock musicians also made inflammatory statements, including David Bowie, who expressed support for fascism. I think Britain could benefit from a fascist leader, he said. People have always responded with greater efficiency under regimental leadership. He was also quoted as saying, Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. And you've got to have an extreme right front come up and sweep everything off its feet and tidy everything up. He further caused controversy by allegedly making a Nazi salute or riding in a convertible, although he's always strongly denied this. He later expressed regret and shame for his statements, blaming them on a combination of an obsession with occultism, Frederick Nietzsche, as well as his excessive drug use at the time. I've made two or three glib theatrical observations on English society, and the only thing I can now counter with is to state that I am not a fascist. By the 80s, Bowie's public statements and imagery in his art had shifted towards anti-racism and anti-fascism. In an interview in 1983, he aggressively criticised MTV for not providing enough coverage of black musicians. He said his videos for China Girl and Let's Dance were simple statements against racism. All of us, me, Red, and people from the the uh, theatre group that Red was in, we were all cultural warriors, if you like. Mm. We were in, involved in agitprop, agitation and propaganda of the art. I read that about agitprop theatre you were involved with that. Well, well, what does that actually mean? Well, agitprop means agitation and propaganda. The actual expression was coined in the Russian Revolution as theatre groups sprung up everywhere in Russia. And this was even more so in the Weimar Republic, the early 1920s. And it came with surrealism, Dadaism, premisism, and all those kind of isms of radical uh, modernity. Bertolt Brecht. Uh, yeah, Bertolt Brecht, a great, another great one, developing some kind of culture form which was both agitational and propaganda. I think there's a great slogan by Bertolt Brecht where he says, art is not a mirror to society, but is a hammer to change it. That theory of agitprop developed. And then in the 60s, because the monolith of Stalinism was cracking and breaking, we was all looking for other forms, other ways, other things that had happened. In the Russian Revolution, there was a train that Trotsky travelled on, and it was actually called the agitprop train. 
Amazing. Um, so, and on the train was a uh, was printing and press, and right? A way to make posters, and when they would get anywhere, they would come off with leaflets, and they would do a theatre, and then they would set up a little cinema for the peasants to come and look at Lenin speaking or whatever. So, and when uh, Clapton came out with his shit. We were very worried about the rise of the National Front. They picked out 42% of the South London vote. I mean, it's enormous, nearly half. And again, I mean, for people who wouldn't know what the National Front is, just give us a quick description. Historically, they were an offshoot from the black shirts, from the Mosley's black shirts of the 1930s. Fascists. Fascists, a Nazi organisation. And they were linked quite closely to the ideas of, uh, of Hitler and the German Nazis. And the idea is you take a hammer to the trade union and movement, you develop a strong street presence to terrify uh, migrants into submission, all those things that ABC in the 30s in Germany. And the National Front were in that tradition, there's no doubt. They, ca- they carried two things in the early 70s. They carried a polite front, which was the vote, they was going for the votes based on uh, the idea of anti-immigration ideas and housing you know get rid of immigrants you get a house get rid of immigrants you get a job you know all these things that are lies sounds familiar sounds very topical yeah yeah very topical the landlord is the process about housing not you're not some poor sod on a canoe coming across the english channel so the atmosphere around then was awful in 1974 malawi expelled all the asians like the Kenyan and Uganda did before. And Malawi Asians were part of the Commonwealth. They came here as immigrants. And that's when Powell made his next speech about repatriation. In 68, he didn't talk about repatriation. He said about being swamped by an alien culture. By the time you get to 1974, he is talking about repatriation. So when... Clapton said that he supports Enoch Powell. It's about repatriation. And I don't know if you've seen the film uh, White Riot, but there's a bit in that when they asked the leader of the uh, of the National Front, Martin Webster, uh, what would he do if they won't go back? And he just looks at the camera and says, oh, they'll go back. That's when you get the echo of the concentration camp. Yeah, That's right. when you get the gas chamber right. echo. Right. And they were very serious Nazis. The Clapton speech, because you're music fans as well, touched a very sort of raw nerve. Yeah. Tell us how you about you and Red and Sid got the idea to actually start Rock Against Racism and, and actually fight back, using music as a way of fighting back. I think it's because we was already involved in agitprop action act, right. activities. Um, Red had been doing some work uh, in the theatre around a, a campaign called the Right to Work campaign. Unemployment rocketed from 73 onwards, really rocketed. I mean, mainly because of the oil crisis and the Labour government uh, doing the bidding of the IMF. And so you got, I think it went up to three to four million unemployed in Britain, which is a big unemployment. So therefore jobs were very, very scarce. And that is the area where the Nazis can really really stoke up hatred. All we knew was propaganda, agitation. Mm. That's all we knew, really. I was working at the SW print shop. Red was a, a, a freelance photographer. So we did what we did, we know best, which is to make pictures and make music. And uh, it was complete historical accident that punk and reggae began at the same time. 
Mm. Uh, very important development in English culture anyway. There's such an important part of the Rock Against Racism story. Punk itself is a radical revolution, isn't it, in terms of it's kicking over the traces about what was going on musically. Also, it was young people standing up and saying, effectively in terms of music and in culture, we're going to take power back into our own hands, the DIY yeah, culture. DIY, yeah. Make our own records, not going to rely on record, big yeah. record labels. Not, well, not for a while. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to print our own fanzines. That all happens right at the same time that you're thinking almost simultaneously and was the punk movement was that generally speaking anti-racist and anti-nazi no it's a contradiction a real contradiction punk begins if you like exactly as you said a diy explosion against the no future Mm. no fun no future mainly no future when uh, rotten sang that it, it had an echo right in the in the heart of the white working class kids and the whole idea that you could just look a couple of calls that's all you need and to make noise and if it was loud enough and mad enough people would jump up and down to it so it but the importance of it all is in the lyric it becomes like all great art it does become a hammer to mm. hit society with it does become a mirror of what the youth are feeling so therefore it becomes a place where they can express their disgust and their anger about the world but that can go either way because i mean all the piercing and, the sh- and safety pins and and the self-harm and everything that's a pessimism dancing to the clashes career opportunities or white man at the rat hammersmith pally or or riot riot that's a positive that's that's so these two things exist simultaneously inside punk and because we were there we really pushed the revolutionary side the positive side the we can change it and we can change it in unity with this other bunch of young people who happen to be black are also under the influence of Bob Marley, mm. who one of the major ones to, to generalise his music and make political 400 years, Concrete Jungle, uh, Get Up, Stand Up, all that stuff that Marley was doing in the early 70s had a resonance within the black kids in Handsworth, in Manchester, in Brixton, and they started writing lyrics about their experience being young black, not getting a job. And there's an overlap, isn't there, between the punk post-punks and reggae. The unity. Well, here's a clip from that documentary, White Riot, by director Rubika Sharma. I was asked, would you come down and photograph the punk night? Suddenly, the clash come on and bang! There was this incredible cultural explosion going on. It was a scary moment because punk could have gone either way. Some of the bands did have NF following. The National Front were growing incredibly. Keep our country free from invasion! They're not English! They don't belong here! We said what we need to do is do a a gig, thing called Rock Against Racism. We're against racism in all facets of British life. We want rebel music, street music, music that breaks down people's fear of one another, music that knows who the real enemy is. Love music, hate racism. The energy and the potential of it was what pulled all these people on board. People in the room were artists and writers and political activists. It was immediate. I thought, this is a gang I'd like to join. At that time, there was a massive amount of police picking up black youth. I met this man, Red Saunders. He was like, we've got to get together, we've got to build something. Rock Against Racism was white people finally waking up to the fact that there's racism here. 
do is get involved in outside organisations with white people, with black people. The only way we can do it is together. We were interested in the idea of people being able to express themselves and that the expression itself was a political act. Black, white, together, tonight and forever. We're going to march from Trafalgar Square to Vicky Park, get a stage, build it, Got to have the clash, absolutely great energy punk band. The police were ridiculing us, saying nobody's going to come to this march. The numbers just kept coming. In this society, we're made to feel powerless and useless, and that the great and the good should do our thinking for us. And one of the wonderful things that we did in Raw was to say, no, just ordinary people, we can do things, we can change the world. That was very, very important, that merging. It's why uh, Rock Against Racism is historically Pacific. Mm, People right. ask me, can you do it again today? No, you can't do it again today. You can use cu cultural forms to fight for a better world, mm. um, whether or not it's climate change or whether or not it's anti-racist or whatever. Love, music, hate racism is gradually learning how to do their own thing, whereas when they started off, they was trying to do our thing, and right. they couldn't do it. You can't do it. <laughs> but, well, what was your thing? Tell us, I mean... Well, tell, our thing tell. was a unity of reggae and punk, mm. and the danger thing was it was live, mm. it was grassroots. Anybody, anywhere could set up a bar group. We would then su su supply them with uh, the names of bands. We, we would help them as much as we could to get their gig off the ground, help them with getting PA systems and all that stuff. It was grassroots. I mean, if you look at our book, Reminiscences of VAR, Wayne Minton put together all the bands that he could remember that played for VAR, and there's about four or five hundred there. All across the country, from, from some very small bands to some very big very bands. Big bands yeah. right? And so it became a movement, didn't yeah, it, really? Yeah, a grassroots movement. movement which yeah. was using art, in this case music, yeah. in a propaganda way to, to, to fight against racism and to fight yeah. against these groups like the National Front and other sort of proto-Nazis who were sort of yeah. setting up and trying to bring their own vicious ideology into yeah. play. They was on a loser, to be honest, mm. because cause they characterised all music as jungle music. Even the skinheads, you know, who really love reggae, you know, this didn't ring. What, you got marching bands, we've got to play Elgar, we've got to do Land of Open Glory and all that stuff, you know. Um, our main slogan was reggae, soul, rock and roll, jazz, funk, punk, our music. This is our music, what's your music, you know? <laughs> and we pushed them on the back foot all the time. And when mm. they finally did try to have their music, it was oi, and it was ugly, and it was vicious, and it, it had none of what really good rock and roll has. Let's face it, it's not very groovy, is it? No, no, not at all. <laughs> and when they tried to do the gig in Southall, the young the young Asians burnt the pub down which right. is a good way of, right. of responding so you, you're having these you know they're effectively celebrations you talk about them the carnivals weren't they you know yeah. you said that the carnivals were kind of the link pins of the struggle for these years in the yeah. late 70s yeah. right where you've got bands like Steel Pulse and all the others playing like little mini festivals effectively yeah. you've got a lot of people coming together dancing yeah having fun yep. at the same time as very active protest and pushing back it was a successful campaign wasn't it it was great it, but, but it was successful because it was married to the mm. anti-nazi league when the, the attacks against the russian um, artist avant-garde began trotsky wrote first sort of answer to it in a book called literature and revolution it's a great book especially the bits about proletarian art but he says in the introduction to the book during the red army days he says the owl of poetry flies in the evening 
his analogy is during the day the soldiers are too busy fighting the revolution but in the evening they're cleaning their weapons polishing their boots reading poetry talking philosophy and i always thought that anl and Ma were those two things anl was the it was in the daytime where the struggle was against racists in the workplace in the evening was when we all come together in unity celebrate uh, and to celebrate that day and then go off again yeah. that's why it works so you say this thing which i thought was really interesting because there's all these other groups start up because of uh, of our you've got the anti-nazi league, you've got school teachers against the nazis bus work against yeah. nazis skateboarders against nazis uh, Eddie was talking about that earlier fireworks against nazis <laughs> yeah they've all got their own badges and you've seen that you know, wherever there was, people wear the badges, wear the stickers, get out the leaflets, and the National Front just couldn't get anywhere. Nothing. They couldn't make any ground. You said soft racists got the confidence to move on and dump their racisms. You were saying that, like, you know, young people, impressionable, and you know, depending on what their environment is, where they live and who their peers are and stuff like that, they may be drifting into racist yeah. views, right? But actually, because of what you were doing collectively those people you could kind of catch them before they went too far and actually convert them yeah. right? is that what you meant by soft yeah. racists yeah yeah i mean that's the same as now right i mean it was very important that in flanelli this weekend there was 160 racists uh with a spattering of nazis in amongst them mm. uh blockading a hotel where there was a refugees going to be mm. housed poor bastards who had just traveled thousands of miles it was very important that there was a presence there of people mm. who didn't agree with that mm. counterbalance account mm. that's the same as that period i've never ever accepted that all, uh, that racism is endemic in the in the, the white working class because mainly because the white working class is a myth for start but also in almost all workplaces uh, there's mixed races the mm. diversity of england makes it so mm. and if you're going to struggle over wages and pay you can't do it without your black mate you need unity mm. by the time you got to the end of the 70s and, and the early 80s is that in a way a lot of the work had been done, done right yeah. and, you, and or you'd set in motion other groups who were going to carry on and as you said now you know there's still people doing that and it, they're not doing it your way they're doing yeah. it their own way right yeah but also then comes after uh, movements like red wedge which was a working class focused thing and kind of an anti-Thatcher thing. It wasn't so specifically about racism. No. Well, it's because there's a general election. I mean, they came about 79 for the general election. So they was arguing for a Labour government. Really. And it was somewhat inspired by uh, Ra, wasn't it? Because actually it was the same thing. It was basically bands. I mean, some again, some very successful big bands. I'm talking about Billy Bragg, but you've got yeah, like yeah. Style Council, Paul Weller, Everything But The Girl. You know, those yeah, bands, yeah, they were, they, they, they yeah. were doing tours, weren't they? Yeah. Basically in support of the miners and... So you inspired quite a lot of other movements as well. Far more than anything, because it was grassroots, involved such an enormous amount of people. Mm. I mean, I, I used to think in terms of thousands, but now I mm. think probably millions. We forget, within months after the London Carnival, there was the Northern Carnival in Manchester. Again, thirty to 40,000. This time, many, many trade union banners mm. on the march, steel drums, mm. uh, lots of black involvement from mm. Manchester, Moss Side, etc. And still Pulse again. Mm. holding the whole thing mm. there and then within a, another year we had the one another one in Botwell Park mm. and then the big one in Leeds in 82 and I think each time we had the carnival it was the moment where we would celebrate the gains and that we'd made the music that came out of that I think we should take a certain amount of credit for not just in terms of two-tone but the stuff that Rick Wag and Panic were doing and not so much the, the new romantics but certainly in terms of funk 
and jazz developments out of that period. Elvis Costello. Style Council. Style Council. All kinds of things really developed out of that. Much more diverse. It freed up the rock stage for women. Hell of a lot of stuff flowed out of that movement and I think we should be proud of that. Absolutely. And you did that. You car- you've carried on. You know, you never stopped been a massive music fan you've never stopped doing musical stuff you never stopped being an activist you never stopped being a radical actually yeah. just wanted to add into the story the other thing which you've been doing for many times which is go right back to the beginning you're still in Walthamstow yes. but tell us what you're doing in Walthamstow and I think this is really important because I, I never knew William Morris was a radical I mean I associate him with wallpaper yeah. and design right yeah William Morris is England's mm. Lenin or Trotsky or whatever not in terms of leading a revolution but in terms of grasping the importance of historical struggle and the need for everybody to be involved in change. In other words, it has to come from below, not from above. And in that respect, he was a real revolutionary. All his writing on art is worth reading today. I mean, his English is a bit odd. It's very Victorian. Uh, But nevertheless, once you undo the kernel of it, he's saying some very important things about the relationship of art to society and, more importantly, the relationship between art and workers. Mm. His argument is quite simply, the more and more you get a division of labour in the factories, the more and more alienated people are from their work. And he sees art as a a product of labour. If the labour's alienated and not yours, then the art also dies. When you discover as well, he's born in Walthamstow. His father made a fortune on the, on the stock exchange, so he never had a want for money, but nevertheless, in his 40s, he gave himself over to struggle, and uh, he never changed. He called it crossing the river of fire, and he went from one class to another class. The class that he left hated him, and it mm. wasn't 1934 when they did a big centenary thing about Morris that he became Morris the wallpaper designer. Mm. A bit like a victim of that myself, because they've sort of successfully rebranded Morris yeah. as the wallpaper guy, yeah, right? Yeah, in actual yeah. fact, and when I started to read about this because of what you do, like it was this radical activist socialist, right? <laughs> yeah. And tell us about what you do in terms of Morris as well in Walthamstow now. There's a gallery there, William Morris Gallery. I welcome people and they all, whether they like it or not, they find out about his radical past. <laughs> so, so everybody... Come to look at the wallpaper yeah, and you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. school them. And so we, yeah. so I use it as that, that platform. Mm. I'm also the organiser of events and speeches so mm. I always make sure that his, uh, his ideas are, mm. uh, are developed in that way. But I think more, more importantly to, to Morris himself is that I carry on with the idea that socialism is not inevitable but it is possible that socialism is the way that we will probably need to save the planet. Good old Rosa Luxemburg said at one time, the future either will be socialist or barbarism. It'll be socialism or barbarism. And you can just look at the way we treat refugees or the way that the, the earth's burning and we're still veckled profits in the fossil industry, etc., etc. I mean, the people who run the system will destroy the planet unless we stop them. So in the spirit of William Morris... I carry on. And people say, well, why are you still doing it? I say, well, it's quite simple. We haven't got what I want yet. <laughs> you know, why should I pack up? You've kept going. And for you, the revolution, the struggle goes on. So, you know, which goes right the way back to your 
days in the 60s and stuff, yeah. you got inspired and you've kept going with that inspiration all the way through, haven't you? It's a living thing. It's an actual thing. It's a, I mean, there was a revolution two years ago in the Sudan. In 2011, there was a revolution in Egypt. Next year, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Portuguese revolution. Revolution takes place almost all the time. The big problem we have then and now is how do we win? That's the problem. Roger, thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture <laughs> and thanks for schooling me. I really appreciate that. I felt like I got woken up a bit. So. <laughs> Good. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yep. Got schooled again. Won't get fooled again. That was super useful. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, my politics are all over the shop. I came from a broadly liberal background, and like many, I was seduced by Tony Blair back in the day. But I swore I'd never vote Labour again after he took us into Iraq on that illegal killing spree. I was sort of coming around again to Jeremy Corbyn till he flaked it on Brexit. And obviously can't stand the corrupt bunch of shysters who've been in power here in the UK for the last 15 years. The Liberals seem missing in action and the Greens don't seem to quite cut it yet. I've got some views which you could say are traditionally right-wing or at least libertarian, I think. And I've got quite a few which are hard left, particularly around nationalisation, and a whole lot of others which are floating around somewhere. Basically, I'm a mixed-up kid. But I do like the idea of being radical. That seems missing and necessary at the moment, given the mess we're in. I mean, one thing I was wondering, was there ever such a thing as right-wing counterculture? Are there any funny right-wing comedians? Are there any good right-wing bands? In fact, is there anything such as right field as opposed to left field? Is counterculture fundamentally of the left? What about you? You can write to us here, bureauoflastculture at gmail.com and check out all that we do. Support us in any way you can. Thanks for listening. Do keep listening. And thanks again to Roger. I'll put some links to him and some of the things we talked about in the show notes and do check out if you want to know more about rock against racism and that whole period sid shelton's absolutely amazing photographs and of course uh rubika shah's award-winning documentary white riot about the whole era terrific stuff i thought we'd finish with this rousing real tuesday world number (laughs) 